What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Bring in show music, please. Hi, I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. Today on Squawk Pod. Inflation nation, heeding economic warnings of recession and buckling up for a long journey. Private equity executive Scott Sperling. I don't think we're going to get wage inflation down to 2% or under. I think we're in a world where that's going to be stickier than people think. The solution to sticky inflation? It might all come down to AI. It's going to be a tool that can be used to drive significant productivity increase. How consumers are spending their cash while they have it. The points guy Brian Kelly, ahead of the Memorial Day kickoff to summer. People still want to travel. The economy's not in complete meltdown yet. <laughs> so people are still bullish and at least saying, well, I'm going to get my trip in now. Those stories, plus the debt ceiling speed bump, Ron DeSantis aiming for the White House, and Netflix Nepo babies, not long for this world. You get to keep your parents' insurance till you're 26, but you get kicked off Netflix at 18. So we'll see how that works. It's Wednesday, it's May 24th. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue it, please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Melissa Lee and Robert Frank. Joe and Andrew are off today. We've got a lot to talk about. We mentioned some of those top headlines. Negotiations over raising the U.S. debt limit have resumed, and the two sides, congressional Republicans and the Biden administration, seem still pretty far apart, with only eight days left to pass a bill before the earliest date the U.S. could face serious risk of default. The talks hit a speed bump, a Democratic official familiar with the situation told NBC News. But House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on his arrival at the Capitol today told reporters it's all still a work in progress. We're going to be talks today, Mr. Speaker. Have you talked but, to the president since Monday? No, but I've talked to uh, the White House negotiators and others. So we'll continue. When will there be talks today, Mr. Speaker? We'll, we'll, we'll get together the Thank you. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has warned that it is now highly likely that the U.S. Treasury will run out of cash in early June without an extension of the debt ceiling. Now, the Treasury bill market is worried. T-bills due in early June, so close to the doomsday deadline of Yellen's warning, have the highest risk of non-payment if we default. Short-term bonds have a significant yield premium now as investors stay away. And that is where we start today. Here's Melissa Lee. In yesterday's session where we saw the S&P and the Nasdaq down by more than 1%, that seemed to be the first sort of tremors in the stock market, concerns about the debt ceiling negotiations hitting an impasse. We'll see how that plays out in today's market. Taking a look at the Treasury board, uh, we've got, of course, the, all the action in the shorter end. Um, Two-year at 4.279, 10-year at 3.679%. But take a look at the T-bill market, because that's where the stress is really being shown in terms of concerns about the debt ceiling. One month, which is just about where that, actually we're less than, less than beyond the X date, 5.6% right now. 
So um, it's actually come down from where it was. If it was 5.7, <laughs> north mm -hmm. of 5.7, um, when you were talking just a, a week or two ago, maybe two weeks ago. So you were looking at even higher four years because those were the ones that were ending right around. Right, the exactly. Of yeah, I mean, the um, idea is that once you get beyond that, there will be theoretically, it'll, they'll find the money somehow. Tax receipts will come in mid-June, right. in theory. Um, but the concern is that a downgrade can happen prior to hitting the X state. Which has happened in the past. Which is what exactly what happened in 2011. Right. And it's sobering to think that corporate bonds right now are trading at a discount and yield to treasuries, which means that people think they have a higher likelihood getting paid back by Microsoft and Johnson & Johnson than the U.S. government. Right. Crazy. Which is crazy. Sources, by the way, confirmed to NBC News that Florida Governor Ron DeSantis will announce that he is running for president during a discussion with Elon Musk on Twitter Spaces this evening. Musk had hinted at that announcement at yesterday's WSJ CEO Council Summit. We'll be interviewing um, Ron DeSantis, and he has uh, quite an announcement to make. Um, and we'll be, be the first time that something like this is happening on social media and with uh, real-time questions and answers, uh, not, not scripted. Uh, so it's going to be... Live and let, 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 let her up. Let's see what happens. DeSantis's wife, Casey, tweeted a teaser video last night that showed DeSantis preparing to walk out onto a stage while a vo voiceover proclaims America is worth the fight every single time. Ahead of the announcement, an official from the DeSantis team provided CNBC with a list of wealthy business leaders who have signed on to be bundlers for his campaign. The list includes David Horowitz of the Horowitz Groups and, and Hal Lambert from Point Bridge Capital. In terms of the wealthy, Robert, we turn to you. <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> Who else could be the, the next target? It's really going to be interesting because the core of his donor base in Florida was really Ken Griffin and Tom Petterfee, right? Tom Petterfee is now officially backed out after the abortion stance and the Disney battle. Ken Griffin is apparently, was initially a big DeSantis backer, now is being more quiet about it. He hasn't said what he's going to do. He's keeping his powder dry. But any, it, any idea as to why? But You know... Remember, Ken Griffin has a big workforce in New York and still in Chicago. So I, I think he's walking a balance between what his own political beliefs are and a lot of the people who are very talented who work for him. And I think he also wants to see where the field plays out. He's yeah. had a very bad track record <laughs> of putting a lot of money, millions of dollars, toward losing candidates in Illinois. So I think this time he wants to be a little more careful. But I think DeSantis has you know, a big base within sort of the, the core conservative Republicans who want a pro-business candidate that is electable. And so I think he'll, he'll have a lot of success maybe outside of Florida. We're going to see. Yeah. I think it's interesting, too, that it's assumed that Elon Musk is backing DeSantis. And I don't, I don't necessarily see that in my... I mean, he has said that he has not endorsed any candidate. He's not endorsing any candidate. He wants to make Twitter and X more like a town square. And in a town square, you've got many voices. And so he's hosting this. It's a big event for Twitter spaces. It's very high profile, right? It's a big, big move for Twitter. So I can see him coming out in the end and backing somebody else or hosting, for instance, a spaces with President Biden or who, whoever else, you know... Maybe the candidate. relationship between the two of them has not been very warm. Biden yeah. hasn't invited him to the White House. Right, exactly. With a lot of the EV makers and others, and that's led to some bad blood. So yeah. you know, we'll, we'll see. I don't, Maybe I don't a long know. wait for that. I don't one, know if, <laughs> if Biden would do that. I don't know if Elon Musk would want him to. But you know, and, they are. 
And it seems like with Musk, it's anyone but Biden. It doesn't necessarily yeah. mean he right. supports DeSantis. Remember, he retweeted that video from uh, Senator Scott. So people thought initially, oh, he's, he's supporting him. I think it's really he likes to have as many alternative voices to Biden. And as he said, he wants someone normal in the presidential <laughs> office. So says the eccentric billionaire. Yes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Let's talk Netflix here. It's begun its password crackdown in the United States. The streaming service said it began altering members yesterday, alerting members, excuse me, about its new sharing policy, noting Netflix accounts are only to be shared within a single household. It is notifying customers that they can transfer profiles so users outside their household can begin a new membership they pay for on their own, or customers can pay an extra fee, $7.99 a month, to cover a user outside their household. Netflix has said that more than 100 million households share accounts. That's about 43% of its user base. The company has already rolled out the new rules in Latin America, where it says it initially saw cancellations, but password borrowers eventually activated their own accounts and boosted revenue. I mean, this is a... What's a household? And if, if you have kids in college, let's say, are they part of your household if, if they're living there four and a half, five months out of the year, but somewhere else seven months out of the year? Um, it, it's going to be tricky. Americans have gotten used to, or you know, early adopters of Netflix, I should say, have gotten used to kind of how these things work. And we were kind of joking around before the show. You get to keep your insurance, your parents' insurance, till you're 26, but you get kicked off Netflix at 18. So we'll see how that works. And, and are they geolocating, in other words? That's what I wonder. They, they must have to be. be. In which case, so, so somebody at a dorm, let's say, they should create their own household where they have 10 people right. on one, on one <laughs> and account. split it. Yeah, yeah. because I'm thinking, you know, there are some people that have a lot of TVs in their household. Yeah. And, oh, you know, so, so you've got, you know. It's not I mean, the number of devices, I don't think. I think it must be geolocated. It must be geolocated. So, so because, well, yeah, otherwise, if, you're, if you've got people who are using it on cell phones, iPads, televisions yeah. in your home, and the rest of it. And I, I mean, I guess I can understand the argument. If, if you were getting a cable subscription, you would have had to pay a separate cable subscription when they went to college, which is why nobody had a cable subscription right. when they went to college. Right. Yeah. Um, but we'll see how it works out. I understand their need to come up with new revenue, but it's the antithesis of catering to what the customer wants because you've spoiled all these people by saying, hey, the whole benefit of this is you can use it anytime, anywhere. And we're not the cable company. Now it right. turns out, yeah, we actually are the cable well, company. Well, and the assumption that it's going to generate more revenue is based on the assumption that those people that were sharing a password are going to sign up with their own accounts. Right. And, and I just wonder how many of those, a lot of them younger students, family members that are just starting, getting started, but, are really going to sign up, especially no as prices increase. Downside, really, unless, unless the main household cuts off their account entirely. So there's right. only potential upside. So let's say even a quarter of those people you know, sign up that's still incremental revenue that they would not have True. already had. Unless, unless so. they get used to not watching Netflix and find something else to do. And then they're like, yeah. yeah. Which, For which, the next generation, I guess it doesn't, it right, If you lose the next generation, right. that's the only thing. But I guess right. if you're never kicking off the next generation to make them pay themselves, you're not getting them anyway. Yeah. So. All right, shares of luxury goods maker LVMH falling 5% in Paris yesterday. That's the biggest drop in more than a year. The stock tumbled over concerns that a softening U.S. economy would dampen demand for luxury goods and reports of a new COVID surge in China. That move wiping more than $11 billion from the fortune of Bernard Arnault. Uh-oh, maybe he's just worth $200 billion Less now. Less rich. <laughs> the world's richest person uh, still, though. That brings the gap between the fortunes of Arnault and Elon Musk to $11.4 billion. Gained to be a horse race there. That's according to Bloomberg. 
and a programming note. We're going to be talking more about the luxury market with the CEO of Moet, a Chandon. That's one of the LVMH luxury brands. It's her first U.S. interview since taking the job in 2020. We're going to be talking a lot about sort of champagne as an index of exuberance and how people are spending, but also given climate change and what it's done to the Champagne region of France, why those prices are likely to stay high for a long time. What does the index say right now? Uh, it demand is still far outstripping supply in, oh. in Champagne. But it was interesting yesterday with these stock fallout because, you know, these luxury stocks just were on a tear yeah. this year. LVMH was up 28% this year. This is the first pullback. We saw it with, with Kieran. We saw it with Richemont. We saw it with Hermes. And the initial reports were that it was due to a slowdown in the U.S. But we know the U.S. is slowing. LVMH latest quarter showed that the U.S. growth was half that of the rest of the world. It was only around 80%. I think the, the bigger concern for investors yesterday were these reports of COVID in China. Are there going to be more lockdowns or at least less shopping? And, and because remember, a lot of this run-up was based on those lockdowns ending. Chinese tourists traveling in Europe, buying a lot of luxury goods there, as well as buying in China. So I think if the China piece of it is at risk, and that was going to offset U.S. and European weakness, that's going to be a concern for They investors. had all talked on the conference call about the growth that they're starting to see really come back in China. Yeah. So that was really the reason, one reason why the stocks really caught a bid most recently. So yeah, I, I, I think it's China. It looks like it, but um, obviously U.S. slowdown is a concern as well. Next on Squawk Pod, a warning on recession and sticky inflation from the CEO of Goldman Sachs and how innovation in artificial intelligence could push our economy forward in this inflation nation. Co-CEO of THL Partners, Scott Sperling. The large language models, that's going to become a commodity. That's not the area of competition. It's really the data. We're back after this. Hi, I'm Ben Rizzuto, wealth strategist at Janice Henderson Investors. Is a brighter future possible? At Janice Henderson, we think it is. For 90 years, we've worked to help clients achieve superior financial outcomes and fulfill our purpose of investing in a brighter future together. We know that this means our thinking and our investments are helping to shape millions of futures. At Janice Henderson, we are committed to helping you invest in a brighter future for the next 90 years and beyond. To learn more, go to JaniceHenderson.com. Travel is great, but planning for travel can be time-consuming and difficult. That's where One Travel comes in. With One Travel, you'll find everything you need to book the perfect trip. Flights, hotels, cars, transportation, it's all right there. With One Travel, you can book online, via app, or even pick up the phone and talk to a travel advisor ready to help you make your selections. Visit onetravel.com music or call 855-437-2154. Plan it, book it, live it. One Travel. This is Squawk Pod, today with Becky Quick, Melissa Lee, and Robert Frank. Here's Becky. Goldman Sachs Chief Executive David Solomon says that he thinks there is a greater chance of recession than not at the end of this year and into early next year. He made those comments at CNBC's CEO Council Summit. More in the camp that we're probably going to have a recession is because I think that inflation is going to be stubborn. I, I don't necessarily see rates really you know, easing at the end of the year based on what I see now. And so uh, I think it's, it's stickier and harder, but, but, you know, also uncertain. And there are a lot of factors that are going to have to be balanced, and, and it's just not clear. 
For more on the markets, including Solomon's recession call and investor jitters from the debt ceiling standoff, we want to bring in Scott Sperling. He is the co-CEO of THL Partners. He's also the chair of Mass General Brigham. And, and Scott, it's good to see you. Good to see you. You know, at private equity, you have a pretty good idea about what's happening in the economy because you see lots of different businesses' numbers. You know exactly what's happening. What's your gauge of where so we stand? My sense is similar to David's, which is we're uh, dealing with a lot of uncertainty. We're dealing with some fundamental slowdowns. We've seen a earnings recession in the public markets over the last few quarters, and that's projected to continue. And so we're looking at a situation where we're trying to reset the base level of what earnings and revenues are in the economy, at the same time that we're looking at both the challenges and opportunities of new technologies, particularly generative AI that's coming out, that can fundamentally change the business model of companies that we've liked to buy over the last few years, particularly in the software space, but could also provide uh, additional ability to drive productivity, which is really the necessary element if we're going to bring in inflation under control. I don't think we're going to get inflation, wage inflation down to 2% or under. Neil Kashkari was with us, and he said, forget it, the Fed is going to get to 2%, that they have to do that. He doesn't think it's fair to start changing the goalposts in the middle because he's worried the Fed loses too much credibility. Even though uh, we keep getting surprised about how high inflation has been, how entrenched it has been, how slow it is coming down, markets seem very optimistic that rates are going to fall. Now, I think that they believe that inflation is going to fall, and then we're going to be able to respond to that. I hope they're right. But nobody should be confused about our commitment to getting inflation back down to 2%. If that's the case, how would that play out? If they keep well, raising rates until they can get to 2% inflation. So I, I think that you can get there in a different way, which is if you believe that wage inflation will be in that higher single digit, mid, below 5%, but let's say 3 to 5 not 2%. You can drive 2% productivity growth to also bring you down back to that 2% level of inflation okay, that's that people are looking at. And so I think people are looking at ways to automate lots of different things, and that activity has been going on for quite a long time. And I think the ability to use generative AI to increase productivity. I think healthcare is an area where it's going to have a huge impact on our ability to drive it. That's, that's not something you're going to see happen this year. It's not that. something you're going to see happen this year, but you're going to start to see the implementation of it this year. I think one of the things about these generative AI tools that we've seen is they're in incredible. I mean, we, it's things that we never imagined a year ago, and it's moving, as we know, at a very rapid pace. But it's still not quite ready for prime time. But I think it's going to be ready for prime time within the next two years. We're going to deal with the hallucinations. We're going to deal with the other issues that cause it to be less stable. And it's going to be a tool that can be used to drive significant productivity increase. The large language models, uh, friends of mine who are much smarter than I am about these things would suggest that that's going to become a commodity. That's not the area of competition. It's really the data and the uh, texture of the knowledge that you have about a specific domain that's going to drive competition. So, the ability to use this technology as a tool, the large language models as a tool, I think is going to be very broadly applicable.
You mentioned implementing that for your software companies, and I assume that's to to get efficiencies on the coding side of things, at least immediately uh, on the software side, there yes. are gains to be made. But how do you think of AI? Because we always hear about AI in terms of the efficiencies and the gains to corporations, but gains come at losses somewhere else. Yep. Uh, and so how do you think about that sort of push and pull and, and does that influence you know, companies? We're not gonna go here because we think AI will eventually make this sector, make this company obsolete. Yes, so that's what we're all looking at right now. Where is it the business models are gonna be disrupted in a way that the long-term uh, profitability of that business or industry is going to be impaired? So that's a process I think all of us in private equity and beyond are looking at. We're trying to find companies that we think are uh, good companies in great areas where there's going to be tailwinds. And we're trying to bring a set of capabilities to those companies, mostly business expertise that they can't afford at the size that they're currently at. And then help them grow even faster, help them uh, improve their business model. Fundamental to that is to be right about the fact that the growth that you're suggesting is going to occur is secular in nature and sustainable in nature. And that's what we're really driving towards. And so this throws open that question in some of the areas that we had thought would have very long sustainable growth drivers to them, such as SaaS software. When you look at the future of private equity, I talk to a lot of big investors, family offices, they still have a large exposure to private equity, but this is an industry that thrived from cheap debt and rising valuations, both of which are gone. Is the future for private equity going to be just wringing improvements and efficiencies out of their existing portfolio, or how are they gonna generate the returns? So, so it's really interesting. I don't think cheap debt has been a great thing for private equity. Because you have to compete with it. Because you have to, you pay up for it. Yeah, but it's, it's and, the and front if you look end at the, the vintage, end. Yeah, if you look at all the vintage analysis, prices. what are the best vintages? The best vintages are when debt is more expensive and we hit a recession, because prices adjust. I don't think that, prices have for fully buying, adjusted. But is it better for selling your company? Well, eventually, if you own a company that you think has that strong, sustainable growth trend to it, you'll pick the right spot to sell. Because the selling... But 40% of private equity sales in recent years were to other private equity yes. firms. Which, and yes. that's gone, too. Yeah. So, and there's no IPOs, and there's uh, no SPACs. So I the actually exits, think you're, you're, you're still seeing some, some PE to PE sales. You're seeing it in these secondary-led G... G, these GP-led secondary sales, where do you, you have a good buy company, from we do, really? we do. So you like evaluate. They're not as good as you guys are, so you can ring more out. Yeah. Of them so we're buying companies, middle market companies, where the prior private equity owner generally doesn't have strong operating capabilities, and so we're looking for something that's proven itself in terms of this secular growth trend, but where we can take a very. We have a team of 22 full-time operating experts in a wide range of areas that we deploy on our deal teams with um, uh, to our companies as a resource. So basically you're buying so, from bad private equity companies. Not bad. They, can't do they, that. They, they, they picked a really interesting area that had good growth. Now to get that company to the next level of growth, they need to have some of the help that we can provide. So that means that we have to pick very carefully. We have to pick companies that can benefit from that and that still have strong secular growth. We can't pick the ones where what we bring may not be as beneficial. Scott, this is great to have you here. We'd love Thank to you. continue this conversation. Please come back. Thank you very much. Cheese will be next.
Coming up, travel headaches. Oh, ahead of a long holiday weekend. The Points Guy Brian Kelly on what frequent flyers in the travel industry need to know to really take off. In general, our air traffic system is way outdated. We need to do a multi-billion dollar investment. More Squawk Pod is right after this. Travel is great, but planning for travel can be time-consuming and difficult. That's where One Travel comes in. With One Travel, you'll find everything you need to book the perfect trip. Flights, hotels, cars, transportation, it's all right there. With One Travel, you can book online, via app, or even pick up the phone and talk to a travel advisor ready to help you make your selections. Visit onetravel.com slash music or call 855-437-2154. Plan it, book it, live it. One Travel. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Up on Becky. Q. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Melissa Lee and Robert Frank. Joe and Andrew are off today. AAA estimates 3.4 million Americans will fly somewhere over Memorial Day weekend. That would be more than 5% above pre-pandemic levels. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg warning, quote, this weekend will be a test of the system. Yesterday on Squawk Box, the CEO of United Airlines blamed FAA staffing shortages for recent holiday flight delays and cancellations. The Secretary of Transportation said a week or two ago that there are 3,000 air traffic controllers short. And we experience it every It's not, not their fault, by the way. Like, this goes back 20 years. We've been understaffed for tw- There's fewer air traffic controllers today than there were 30 years ago. Um, and we just have to fix that. That's the issue. We all know that's the issue. We just need to get that fixed uh, if we're going to, to really uh, have an impact on this, this, this on delays. In other words, it is their fault. <laughs> Joining us now in this busy weekend ahead and the nationwide flight traffic is Brian Kelly, the founder of The Points Guy. Brian, what do you think this weekend is going to look like? Are we going to see headlines on Sunday and Monday about cancellations, delays, very angry people sitting in airports? I'm an optimist at heart, and I'm feeling good about this weekend, also because I'm traveling this weekend, so I need to put the good vibes out there. Uh, No, I think it's going to be good. So much is based on weather, right? We saw in the, the holiday meltdown that Southwest blamed on the weather. It was really their technology. Um, So I think it's going to be smooth sailing this weekend, uh, but you just never know with the airlines. And we heard the United CEO basically blame the FAA. I wonder from your perspective, how much is this also the airlines? I mean, if you look at they they've cut routes, they've basically ensured profitability and strong margins by, you know, filling planes, but basically, you know, still probably under capacity and frustrating a lot of travelers. How much and what do you think the airlines still need to do to improve that experience? So it's on everyone, right? So I do wholeheartedly agree. I mean, it's crazy. This summer, the airlines have to cancel flights in and out of New York due to this shortage. So, and we've seen a number of near misses uh, where air, you know, air, aircraft have almost hit into each other. Now that's some pilot error, some ATC. But in general, our air traffic system is way outdated. We need to do a multi-billion dollar investment. Uh, and I was hoping that would happen in our government infrastructure plan, but that really focused kind of on roads and bridges, which is needed. But so anyway, uh, the airlines also need to staff up too. You know, we uh, we scored all the best airlines last year. Complaints were up nearly a hundred percent. Missed bags were up twenty-five percent. You can't blame missing bags on air traffic control. So the airlines got to do their part with staffing and as well. In the beginning of this year, everyone was predicting that prices for airlines and hotels would finally start coming down. I mean, I guess they have a bit, but you know, when you go to book a hotel in just about any major city, any time of year, in any month, 
and you book airline tickets, especially if you're traveling business, they're still very high. Do you see that changing and and how do you see demand right now? Demand is is still through the roof. It's crazy. I I booked a last minute trip. I'm going to Puerto Rico this weekend and the flights were out of this world. You know, Google has this explore map feature where you can put in your home airport and it'll show you all the fares around the world so you can find the cheapest fare. There were none. I mean, the, the you know, New York to LA, $3,000 one ways are now common in business class. So, um, you know, I don't see it subsiding. People still want to travel. The economy's not in complete meltdown yet. <laughs> so people are still bullish and at least saying, well, I'm gonna get my trip in now. And once again, China is reopening. That was the big X factor yeah. last year. Yeah. Chinese tourists with tons of cash were not in Europe. Yeah. Now, are they gonna be in Europe like the levels we thought? No, but still that added pressure. We're seeing hotels in Italy. If you haven't booked now, you're not staying. And we talked a lot about AI. And one area where I think AI should be applied, that's not, is the airlines, especially when you have to change something and you have to call them. And that's your whole day. You're sitting on the phone with some, you know, really bad hold music for hours. What do you think should, should be done? And do you think that the airlines are getting the message? I think on? airlines and airports, how silly is it that you have to wait in a TSA line for a relatively unskilled worker to, to eye your horrible license picture and say, yep, that's the secure way to get people through fastly? No, of course not. Biometrics and technology should be speeding up our airports. And yeah, the airlines, it's incredible how often uh, you have to call the airline to change a flight. So you know, chatbots, the, the, the industry really needs to increase uh, the level of technology across the board. And when you look at the summer, what are some popular destinations that may not be obvious or where are people, particularly sort of affluent travelers, going this summer that, that are maybe not popular destinations of the past or maybe good deals? Well, it's interesting. You know, the Caribbean used to be off-peak. You could go get deals in the Caribbean. Yeah. The Caribbean is as busy as ever because Europe, and people traveling, and Europe still will be busy, but there are a lot of strikes about to happen. Uh, the French air traffic controllers have basically said, hey, all summer long, get ready. German strike, you know, last year we saw the baggage meltdowns in London, 10,000 bags. Just, you know, so I think so many people got burnt going to Europe last summer that people are staying closer to home, Mexico, uh, Caribbean, and those rates are through the roof. Where are the rates not through the roof? Uh, you know, you can well, ask you for a friend. Yeah, you know, Asia is open now. Granted, Japan is still really expensive, but you can get really good deals. Thailand, Indonesia, you know, it takes a long time to get there. Also, South Africa is a really, you know, there's now multiple nonstop flights. South Africa is one of my favorite places to go. And also Argentina, where the U.S. dollar is really, really strong. That's where you get bang for your buck. You know, the euro has strengthened, you know, the, the dollar last summer was really, really strong. So Latin America... Uh, South Africa. So it's a minimum eight-hour flight yeah, here you're talking about basically. to get the good deals. But Not Europe, with kids, uh, yeah, right? as far as, yeah. as, far as <laughs> Europe, though, I'm still a big fan of Portugal. I spent March yeah. here. It's still so much more affordable, yeah. amazing quality of life, and great oh, culture. Portugal's great. Great food and wine. Yeah. Yes. Brian Kelly, safe travels. Thanks for joining <laughs> Thanks us. Thanks for having me. And uh, I want to thank both Melissa Lee and Robert Frank for being here today. Pleasure. Thank you. Great. And that's the pod for today. Thank you for listening. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. To catch them live for three full hours, tune in weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 Eastern. And to get more of what you just heard, the highlights from the TV show, plus a little extra, click that follow button for Squawk Pod wherever you're listening now. And we'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys.
Travel is great, but planning for travel can be time-consuming and difficult. That's where One Travel comes in. With One Travel, you'll find everything you need to book the perfect trip. Flights, hotels, cars, transportation, it's all right there. With One Travel, you can book online, via app, or even pick up the phone and talk to a travel advisor ready to help you make your selections. Visit onetravel.com slash music or call 855-437-2154. Plan it, book it, live it. One Travel.